Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. And we're finally using the new audio equipment that was made possible through a generous donation from our friend Rhonda in Colorado. Hi, Rhonda. Hi, Rhonda. And we're hoping it sounds okay. I'm a little nervous. When we test it, it does sound better, but I'm I'm just nervous about yeah. it. Yeah, well, cause... we'll find out, won't we? As we say many times, we're, we're amateurs. Right. We are amateurs, and if nothing... Is and as some of our ratings have, and people have generously, I don't know the right word, they, they remind us of that. Well, let's focus on the positive. We have many positive. We got a, just got a nice email from listener Julie. Hi, Hi Julie, Julie. Who talked a little about domestic violence and her thoughts. And after. Julie, I totally agree with you. We do. And we'll talk about it more after this because some of the, what's going on in my story Ooh. may come into play. And I just got back from a trip to visit our sister Liz in Oregon. It was episode 107. I think that she was, hers are always popular, but we went to some of the crime scenes of some of the episodes that she's done and I do plan to get out a newsletter. It won't be before this comes out because we're recording this shortly before I have to edit it and get it up, but it will be shortly for our Patreon. I can't figure out whether to do separate newsletters with different, like the Oregon photo and then some of ours, like the New Hampshire ones Liz and I took, or do all one big newsletter and I don't know do if it. it matters. It's probably up to you. Yeah, I guess it depends on whether Whatever people want to get, get a lot of newsletters or not. And again, this is for our Patreon listeners. So if you want to see that stuff, you might want to support us on Patreon. Yeah. And I know the last episode I said I would have an update on the bodies found in the landfills in Maine and New Hampshire. But there has literally been nothing written. Nothing about cause so of death. weird. Nothing about who the woman in the Maine landfill was. Nothing about cause of death on either woman or why their bodies were found in the landfills or anything. Not one thing. And yet, Not even a story saying that the police aren't saying anything. The thing that uh, kind of bugs me is, I mean, I, I understand that resources have changed for, for print news. But, like, even the TV news, it's like they have the same story because mom watches the news, like, yeah, I watched six Channel 6. And 11 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. The same story will run for, like, three days. Yes. About some, like picnic in honor of something right and it's like in okay. bangor <laughs> yeah they're all in bangor and it's like what the fuck yeah can you have a story about somebody if it seems to me if i were running a tv station now i'm not obviously know nothing about it except for i'm a watcher but that's the kind of story that's intriguing yes that who is this person in the landfill? Why don't you go? How see did if you she can die? Find out something. Why about is her? That. Yes, find out instead of doing yet another story about some charity walk or a I picnic know. or some memorial For to the somebody. I mean, I, I feel bad that a cop got hit by a car and died, but we don't need a story about it four days in a row. Right. That all said. Okay. Uh, do you have anything more, or should I get started? I don't think I have any updates. Should I just start? Yes, and I'm excited because, as usual, I'm in the dark yes, about what you're doing. You're in the dark, and I'll, I'm trying to keep my you from seeing my thing. I so can't, you can't read, read it. From, I don't have my glasses on. Okay, good. My number one source for this story is a December 2019 New York Times Magazine ProPublica oh, well, article ProPublica. by Pamela Koloff. I usually don't rely so heavily on one source, but she was so thorough that all the other sources seem to have less or they pulled from her story. For the article, she did a huge public record search, so it's definitely the most detailed and accurate source out there. And where there are differences in fact between her and other sources, I'm going with her. Okay. 
because she did that public record search. I also used an October 24th, 2020 episode of the show 2020 that made me want to tear my hair out in many ways, mm. but did provide some information. I also found a court filing that had a lot of great smaller details. And when I use other sources, I'll be sure to name them. There weren't a lot of other ones. But anyway, on September 23rd, the Florida Supreme Court reaffirmed the conviction of death row inmate James Daly. Daly has been on Florida's death row for 34 years, since his conviction for the 1985 murder of 14-year-old Shelley Baggio. It was the seventh time Florida's Supreme Court had turned down an appeal from Daly. Daly's most recent execution date was November 7, 2019, but it was stayed until the Florida Supreme Court could weigh in. In the most recent rejection, the one on September 23rd, six of the court's seven judges voted to not overturn his conviction. No date has been set for his execution. The only recourse left for him is the U.S. Supreme Court or clemency from mm. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, to which I say good luck since Ron DeSantis seems to be a fairly pro-death guy in many ways. Although he probably doesn't have a problem with someone that would kill... No, never mind. Well, why don't you wait <laughs> and find out what really <laughs> happened okay. to Shelley Baggio? Ooh, okay. Shelley Baggio was raped, strangled, and stabbed 31 mm. times, then held under the water in the intercoastal mm. waterway until she drowned. 18 of her wounds were defensive wounds on her hands, showing how hard she fought for her life. Her naked body was left under a bridge on the intercoastal waterway in Indian Rocks Beach, Florida, where it was found floating in the water Aww. the next day by a bridge tender. At a 2019 hearing, Baggio's sister Callie said the family is tired of, quote, the James Daly show. They want the state to get on with it and execute him. You may be saying, okay, why do we care about James Daly then, who murdered this 14-year-old girl so brutally? Well... Let's start at the beginning. Shelly Baggio moved with her father, Frank, and two sisters to Pinellas County, Florida, after her parents divorced in Battle Creek, Michigan. She's described by the narrator in the 2020 show as 14 going on 30 in many ways, mm. which is misogynistic, I know, but also gives you an idea of what her life was like. She died sometime between 1.30 and 3 a.m. on May 5, 1985. When her body was found, they thought she was older than she was. The initial stories called her a murdered woman in her late teens to early 20s. It took them two days to identify her, and they did it using a turquoise ring she wore in the shape of an eagle and a scar on her stomach. It was happenstance that brought Shelley Baggio and James Daly into each other's lives. James Daly married his high school sweetheart, Mary Kay, in Kansas in 1966. He then served three tours with the U.S. Air Force in Vietnam, going there in 1968 right after the Tet Offensive. After every rocket attack, his job was to go out and help get wounded soldiers back to safety and look for bodies and body parts, gathering up the body parts. Quote, I just wasn't made for that. It affected me horribly, Daly says now. Mary Kay said that when Daly finally came home from Vietnam, he was a changed man. The two got a divorce. Daly... 38 at the time of Shelley's death, was a drifter, and he had an alcohol and drug problem. In Kansas, he hit it off with a guy named Jack Percy, a sometimes construction worker. They met in a bar, and they teamed up and headed to Florida. Daly was a mild-mannered guy with no criminal record. 
You couldn't say as much for Percy. He had a history of violence and domestic assault. The two ended up renting a two-bedroom house in St. Petersburg, Florida, and Percy by then had a girlfriend, Gal Bailey, who was soon pregnant. Also living in the house, sleeping on the couch, was a Kansas friend, Oza Dwayne Shaw. It's not clear how they paid the rent, since it seems like none of them had jobs yeah. and spent most of their time drinking and smoking pot. That sounds fun. Yeah. On Saturday, May 4th, 1985, the three guys, James Daly, Jack Percy, and Oza Shaw, were driving around St. Petersburg drinking when they saw Shelly, her twin sister Stacy, and another girl hitchhiking. Uh-huh. The men knew the girls. They'd quote-unquote partied with them before. And Percy, 28 at the time, had, quote-unquote, shown interest uh, in 14-year-old Shelley. Shelley's father, Frank, was concerned about the attention Percy was showing his daughter and had even told her to stay away from him. Uh, Still, children are going to do what children do. Uh-huh. And so the girls got in the car with the men. The group headed back to the house where the group drank and smoked pot. Gail Bailey, Jack Percy's girlfriend, who the 2020 show has to mention every time they mention her that she was pregnant, joined them as they watched an Alfred Hitchcock movie. It's not clear whether it was an Alfred Hitchcock movie or TV show. 2020 makes a big deal. Oh, they watched an Alfred Hitchcock murder mystery. But yes, all Alfred Hitchcock things are murder mysteries. And that was what was on TV. Anyway, afterwards, the group decided to go back out. Stacy and the other girl asked to be dropped off in an apartment where a party was going on, but Shelley continued on with the men and Gail to a bar called Jerry's Rock and Roll, where they continued to drink. People who saw her there that night said she was disheveled looking and barefoot. Huh. A juror from Daly's 1987 trial, she was interviewed on 2020, and she said, what are you even thinking? And I assume she's referring to Shelley. So obviously you can see that the attitudes kind of blame a 14-year-old girl for the situation to start with. And the theme of dismissing women runs through the story. Also, I'm not sure why this woman, the former juror, was on 2020. She spends a lot of time telling the same story everyone else's. It's one of those annoying storytelling things where they have like five people telling the same story. And she also is very overwrought and melodramatic, way too much so. Her only real contribution comes when she talks briefly about the trial, which we'll get to in a bit. And in general, she's sympathetic to Shelley, but it's a way to show some of the attitudes about the case. And also, I, you know, I love a chance to snipe at a bad, like, news magazine show. So, um, you know, yes, I have to do bad. that. Shelley spent a lot of time dancing with Jack Percy that night. As the narrator on 2020 points out, I guess he's a narrator reporter. He's the guy with the really weird pompadour hairdo. Um, Mm -hmm. I can't remember his name. Points out, a DJ at the club remembers they were even possibly dancing to the Leonard Skinner song, Give Me Three Steps. Whoa. Yes, that was exactly my reaction. And for those of you who aren't familiar, some of the lyrics are, I was cutting the rug down at a place called The Jug with a girl named Linda Lou, when in walked a man with a gun in his hand, and he was looking for you-know-who. He said, hey there, fella, with the hair colored yellow. What's you trying to prove? Because that's my woman there, and I'm a man who cares, and this might be all for you. I said, excuse me. Right. <laughs> right. You know the song. The guy gets away from the angry boyfriend, if you're wondering. I'm not sure why 2020 felt that song was so significant. I don't know why either. But there you have it. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was playing since... I'm not even a Leonard Skinner fan, and I know that song by heart. Because back in the 80s, 
It still plays all the time. Yeah. And back in the 80s, you didn't have as much choices no. for accessing music, no. so you'd listen to songs. Whatever's on the radio. In fact, I remember once Nikki and I were driving, this is very quick, Nikki and I were driving somewhere, and this was back when there were cassettes, and she had a Steve Miller cassette, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I hate Steve Miller, but it was the only cassette we had, so she put it in, and after a while, she goes, if you hate Steve Miller, why do you know the lyrics to all the songs? And I'm like, because you couldn't help it back then. We have things in our head we can't help. We can't help it. Anyway, at midnight, the group headed back to the house. Shortly after that, Piercy said he was going to bring Shelly home. Oza Dwayne Shaw, the guy who's sleeping on the couch, asked for a ride to a payphone so he can call his girlfriend. And this is where the stories begin to differ. Daly later said, and this was backed up by Oza and Gal, that he stayed home and went to bed. Percy isn't so clear about where Daly was. Percy drove Oza to the payphone to call his girlfriend, and he and Shelly waited in the car. Percy started getting impatient as the call went on, and he honked the horn. Oza's girlfriend later told police that she asked Oza, who's that? And Oza said, that's Jack and some girl. That call was made about around 1.15 a.m. Percy and Shelly dropped Oza off at the house, and Oza said Jack then went off alone with Shelly and didn't come back until after 4 a.m. Oza was positive at the time that Daly didn't go with them. They just dropped Oza off and went on their way. Percy later said when he dropped Oza off, Daly joined him and Shelly, or possibly Daly was already in the car. Hmm. In any case, Percy drove to a lover's lane on the intercoastal hmm. waterway. It's also a fishing spot that was a favorite of his. Here, things got out of hand. Percy said he passed out, only to wake up to hear Daly and the girl arguing. Then Daly ran back to the car and jumped in and told him to get out of there. Percy said he immediately knew what happened. He later changed his story a little in various ways. In fact, one time even saying he stabbed Shelly once, but that Daly mm. did the rest. Oh, please. Then he changed it back to that he was passed out and didn't know what happened. Not only was the place Shelley's body found a favorite fishing spot of Percy's, but her wounds match a knife that Percy was known to have, though the murder weapon was never found. Daly's story is that he was in bed when Percy, in the wee hours of the morning, came back home alone after bringing Shelley home, woke him up, and asked him to come out and drink and smoke pot, that he wanted to talk with him about something. They drove to the Bel Air Causeway, where Percy and Daly played a little frisbee by the water, and Percy told Daly he had to move out because Gail wanted to turn the bedroom into a nursery. Gail and Oza both said when the two guys got home around dawn, Daly's jeans were totally wet from the waist down. Daly said it was because they were throwing the frisbee around as they talked, and it went into the lagoon, and Daly had to wade in to get it. If I was going to make up a story, I'd make up one better than that, mm. he said later. Good point. Later that morning, Percy insisted the entire group go to Miami. And that's across Florida from where they were. Daly had never been there and was a fan of Miami Vice, Mm -hmm. a very popular (laughs) show at the time. So he definitely wanted to go along. Oza went along too because, again, Jack insisted everyone go, although this later changed to people kind of just voluntarily went. Daly and Oza, when they got to Miami, shared a room checking in with their real names. Jack and Gal shared another room, and Jack used an alias when he registered them. Mm. The next day, Daly had Percy bring him to the bus station, where Daly got a ticket west. Percy had bought tickets for a cruise for himself and Gal, but didn't use them. Instead, he drove to his home state of Kansas. I don't know what happened to Gal. I don't know if he dropped her off home. I don't know if she went to Kansas with him. It's not clear. By now, Shelley's body had been identified, 
and cops in Pinellas County were looking for Daly and Percy, who Stacy, Shelley's sister, said were with Shelley the night before her body was found. The cops know the two are from Kansas, so the Florida police called the Kansas police. When Percy showed up in his hometown of, and I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing this right, it's a, one, a name I see, but I don't know that I've ever heard pronounced Olathe, Kansas, Olathe, O-L-A-T-H-E, Kansas, the police were ready for him. The cops in Percy's hometown knew who he was. He'd been arrested before for battery assault, terroristic threats against his girlfriend, a sexual assault charge that was dismissed, and more. He was also involved in a murder-for-hire thing in Missouri where he'd agreed to stab a doctor, but then apparently backed out and someone else did it instead. <laughs> Video of him in the interrogation room in Kansas shows him in a tank top that showed off his tanned muscles, Ooh. smoking, and he seems pretty low-key. While his striking blue eyes and full head of curly brown hair may have turned some female heads, the Kansas cops weren't fooled. Mm. One of the cops who interviewed him at the time, Joe Pruitt, told 2020 of Percy, quote, his social gyro was off the gimbals. He what? was a different cat. In other words, he was nuts. I know, but I've never heard that. Well, I guess it's a Kansas expression. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I kind of like it. I and then like he said that, he was a different cat. I like yeah, that too. And I get cat. that. This is when Percy first tells the story that he passed out in the car. And the next thing he knew, he awoke to hear screaming. Then James Daly came back to the car with wet pants and told him to drive. Percy said he knew what happened, but he didn't see it happen. If he'd seen Daly do something, he said he would have stopped it. Mm -hmm. Percy said he didn't tell the cops because it freaked him out. I don't want to know what happened, he said. And um, as a prosecutor on 2020 points out, it always helps to be the first person that the cops talk to That's in these right. things. Percy was extradited back to Pinellas County in Florida. When he was interrogated there, he knew details of the murder that only the investigators knew but he still claimed Daly did the killing. Percy eventually failed a polygraph, for whatever that's worth. It's something you don't read a lot about because, hey, how does it benefit the cops who are trying to nail James Daly to say that Percy, the one person who says Daly did it, failed a polygraph? But I'm getting ahead of myself. Daly, meanwhile, had stopped off in Arizona, and a guy who was remodeling a building in California asked him if he wanted to come along to California to help. And Daly said, sure, why not? He didn't have anything better to do. Remember, he was a drifter. He was a drifter. But on November 6, 1985, Daly was arrested in California. Mm. He tells the cops, you guys got the wrong guy. Some raise the fact that it's suspicious he took off after the murder, but the guy is a drifter who was told he had to be out of his house in Florida. And as he points out, he didn't change his name or do anything to hide. He was unaware that Shelley had been killed until then, and he was unaware that anyone was looking for him. Exactly. Both Percy and Daly were indicted. In November 1986, Percy went to trial. As I said, he'd failed a polygraph on the topic of who actually did it. But at his trial, he claimed Daly did it. He was convicted, but he got life in prison, not the death penalty. A big disappointment to the prosecutor who was pushing for a death sentence. Pinellas County, Florida at the time was sending more prisoners to death row than any other county in the state that was sending more people to death row than any other state. They were the winners. They were sending them there like Number it was one. Right, the supermarket, right. In a sentencing memo to the court, the state attorney said, quote, no evidence exists that Percy was not 
the main actor in this child's brutal murder. Mm. In other words, all the evidence points to Percy as being the perpetrator. Yep, they may have felt that at the time. But with their death penalty cred to uphold and the trial of James Daly awaiting, they needed to turn their attention to frying him instead since they couldn't fry Jack Percy. In 1986, as Daly's 1987 trial approached, the only evidence against Daly was Percy's story and his wet pants, if you want to call that evidence. The fact he went with Percy to drive Shelley home was disputed at the time by Oza Shaw and Gal Bailey, who both said Daly went to bed and was there until Percy came home alone around four. Interestingly, by the way, Daly was apparently never given a polygraph, Mm. despite the fact that in the 1980s, even though they were being wildly dismissed, as they are now, they were all the rage, even more so than they are now. You have to wonder why the Pinellas County cops didn't polygraph Daly, especially given the lack of evidence. Mm. If they did, again, no one's talking about it. So... Anyway, 10 days after Jack Percy was convicted, Detective John Halliday, the lead on the case, went to the Pinellas County Jail and pulled every inmate from Daly's pod into an interrogation room, one by one, to ask if Daly had said anything incriminating to them. That's right, with no evidence to be had, Halliday was going for the tried-and-true jailhouse snitch prosecution. He even helped the inmates along by spreading newspapers with stories about the murder across the table as he oh, talked to them. Jesus. Quote, I got a very uneasy feeling looking at the newspaper articles, Michael Sorrentino, one of the inmates interviewed by Halliday, said. Had I wanted to say something or fabricate something, all the tools were there to give them whatever they might be looking for. At the time, though, there weren't any takers. According to Halliday's notes from that day, no one gave him anything he could use. Some of the notes after talking to inmates were, quote, said daily denies charge, quote, doesn't know a thing, quote, nothing. <laughs> quote, knows nothing, didn't even know daily. Quote, stays to himself, knows nothing. Quote, refused to come to be interviewed. Quote, wish I could have helped you, but it's a little out of my league. So, those were some of the things he wrote down after talking to these guys. No dice. But there was one positive for Halliday. Word was out in the Pinellas County Jail that Halliday was looking for a snitch. By the time Daly went to trial in May 1987, Halliday had three. Two of them worked in the law library at the jail and said it was there they heard Daly say, I'm the one that did it. Then there was Paul Skalnick, the third snitch. Skalnick contacted Halliday just a few weeks before jury selection. By now, Percy had made it clear that he was not going to testify against Daly. So Halliday, the cop, was in a bind. He had absolutely nothing against Daly, and the state wanted him to go to the chair. So what was he to do? When Skalnick quote-unquote contacted Halliday about Daly, Halliday and he were old buddies. They'd first worked together in 1983 when Skalnick's snitch testimony helped send two men to death row for a triple homicide. Skalnick was especially good with the kind of details that made juries hate a defendant. Those little evil things that made them long to be the ones to pull the switch on the electric chair themselves. He wouldn't disappoint in Daly's trial. Can I ask, did it ever say in the article what he was in jail? You'll find out. You will. I'm just curious. Yeah, oh, yeah, you'll find out. The New York Times' Pamela Koloff describes Skalnick as dark haired and stocky with olive skin that offset his gray blue eyes. Mm. Skalnick had a wide, expressive face that was malleable, like an actor's, registering emotions with almost vaudevillian embellishment. His words had a stagey yet captivating sincerity. Mm. Unquote. 
Skelnick was the last one to testify on a Friday afternoon, so his words would stick in jurors' mind through the weekend in Daly's trial. Jurors were told Skelnick had been a police officer and were told he was honest and reliable. Skelnick told jurors, yes, he'd been convicted of five or six felonies, mm. but, quote, I still do have law enforcement inside of me. <laughs> Those felonies, he said, were grand theft, not murder, not rape, no physical violence in my life. Okay. And I want y'all to remember that. Skelnick said he was passing Daly's cell when Daly called him over for advice, thinking Skelnick was a private investigator. Hmm. As they stood at the bars of Daly's cell, Daly told Skelnick he'd stabbed Shelley and threw the knife away. According to Skelnick, Daly told him that he stood over Shelley and stabbed her and she wouldn't die, so he had to keep stabbing her. Skelnick said what Daly told him, quote, was so hard to comprehend and to accept, I had seen this gentleman walking in the hallways, laughing and kidding with other inmates. And all of a sudden, to see a man's eyes and to describe how he can stab a young girl. And she was screaming and staring at him and would not die, unquote. Mm. And the prosecutor asks, were those Mr. Daly's words as best you can remember? And Skelnick answers, as best as I can recall, mm. gravely, according to the New York Times. Yeah. And he said, Daly said, she is screaming, staring at me and would not die. The state's last witness, the next Monday, after the jury had a weekend to absorb, that was Halliday, the cop, who said that Skelnick had supplied him with reliable information in other cases, yielding extremely positive results. Daly's attorney told him not to testify in his own defense because the Frisbee story just wasn't credible and nobody mm. would believe it. I actually don't find it. Don't. And Daly says that's what they used to do they all they did was drink and smoke dope so it wasn't abnormal for them to go down to the beach and talk and they'd play frisbee while they were talking and smoking pot but anyway Kaloff, the new york times reporter wrote scalenick offered a vivid first person account of a confession in a trial that had been long on conjecture but short on hard evidence his testimony became the linchpin of the state's case so much so that Andrews, and that's Beverly Andrews, the prosecutor, would cite him more than a dozen times in her closing argument. Andrews also assured the jury that Skalnik was honest and reliable. The overwrought juror on the 2020 show, who makes me feel like I never want to ever visit Florida because if I get convicted of a murder I didn't do, someone like her may be on the jury, <laughs> said that since Daly didn't testify, the only words of his they had to go by were Skalnik's. So what else could they do? Quote, it's the only way we could hear James Daly's voice, oh, she Jesus. said. So she kind of seems to blame Daly for not testifying. I just want to remind people that not testifying in your own defense, which most defendants in big trials like this do not do. And most of their attorneys do, tell them And most of their attorneys tell them not to. Is a constitutional right. And judges at trials tell juries not to take that as evidence of guilt. Exactly. Yeah, it's just like getting a lawyer in the first place. It's considered... And also, as a juror, you're supposed to be looking at evidence. Right, not at that type of emotional thing. Anyway, Daly was convicted, and unlike Jack Percy, who just got life, Daly was sentenced to die in the electric chair. Mm. In fact, the jury voted unanimously, which was rare for them, to, that he be sentenced to death, and the judge sentenced him in August 1987. Everyone said it was Skelnick's testimony that convicted Daly, Again, there was no other evidence except those wet pants, if you want to call them evidence. People on the 2020 show repeat the she-wouldn't-die statement from Skelnick mm -hmm. as though Daly himself had said it out loud in court. When the judge announced the death sentence, there was cheering in the courtroom. Daly's ex-wife, Mary Kay, who was there, said, I don't know how anybody could cheer at a death sentence. 
I guess she's never been to Florida. And can I ask you yeah. a- about uh, Shelly? Was there evidence of sexual assault or anything like they, that? And I should have said that earlier. Since she had been in the water, oh, yeah. they couldn't That's tell if there was, was, there was no DNA evidence. Was 1986, 85. Right? Oh, 85. So they so, weren't yeah. looking for DNA exactly. anyway, okay. but... It was hard to tell. There was no hairs exactly. or semen or anything okay. because she had been in the water. Yeah, that makes sense. Daly was let out of the courtroom after his death sentence was pronounced, and he sat down on a bench and started crying. A guy next to him, he said it was a mental health work, asked why he was crying, and Daly said, I was just sentenced to death for a crime I didn't commit. Daly has maintained his innocence for the past 34 years. He said he wished he could have done something to prevent the murder at the time, but he didn't know Percy had a record of assault on women. Well, Daly and Percy were hanging out from Kansas to Florida, drinking and whatever else they were doing in the early 80s. Paul Skalnick, whose testimony put Daly on death row, was also a busy man. Paul Skalnick grew up in League City, Texas, where he played baseball and did very well in school, where he was on the student council and voted president of the future business leaders of America. He briefly attended the New Mexico Military Academy after he graduated from high school in 1967, and then he was briefly a police officer in Austin. That was for less than a year, in 1972 and 73. Remember how jurors at Daly's trial in 1987 were told Skalnick was a police officer, so that made him honest Mm -hmm. and reliable? That little stint was it. And as you'll see, there's a lot of other stuff, including his very brief police career, that made him dishonest and unreliable, to put it mildly. The reason he left the police force was that he got caught writing bad checks and was charged with theft. He was allowed to resign from the police force, and he wasn't charged with anything. Hmm. In 1976, in Orange County, Florida, he ripped off someone for $700 after he posed as a furniture salesman, and they paid him for furniture that didn't exist. Hmm. In his car, police found a stash of checks for accounts that didn't belong to him, IDs, and stationery bearing the seal of the Texas State House of Representatives. Skelnick got probation for the fraud, and that was it. He went back to Texas, where he became, apparently, legitimately an insurance agent. But that wasn't an end to his shenanigans. (laughs) By 1977, when he was 28, he'd been divorced twice when he met Penny Rogers. She was the single mother of a 14-year-old daughter and a younger son. Penny worked at a funeral home, and Skalnick met her there while at a family funeral. Mm. He swept her off her feet, Mm. Lisa Rogers, her daughter, said later. Skelnick told Penny he was CEO of Southwest Airlines. (laughs) They got married. (laughs) That's quite a... Yeah, he he shoots high. He definitely shoots high. They got married shortly after meeting, and he moved into their Friendswood, Texas condo. He'd leave with a briefcase in the morning, Mm -hmm. saying he was flying to Dallas, where Southwest was headquartered, and he'd be home for supper. Hmm. He wore a three-piece suit and a lot of jewelry. Flashy jewelry. He took the family to University of Texas football games. He said he'd played for them in college, and he had never attended college, actually. And they'd stay in a fancy hotel. When they went to check out, if one of his many, many credit cards was rejected, he'd write a check. Oh, jeez. Lisa said, but what got me is he always stole the robes and towels. (laughs) (laughs) He gave Penny a brand new baby blue Lincoln Continental and a customized Dodge van with red velvet curtains and CB radio. He gave Lisa a gold nugget Seiko watch that was encrusted with diamonds. Mm. When she asked him if it was real, he said, looks real to me. <laughs> he was also squirrely. He kept his handgun within reach at all times, mm. even when he was driving. In short order, he became abusive to the Rogers mm. family. He'd lock Lisa's brother up in a room and beat him. Aww. He also beat Penny. 
He had something different in mind for Lisa. He started sexually assaulting her. Fortunately for Lisa and the rest of the family, Skalnik began frequently heading out of town, quote-unquote, on business Mm. and um, staying away for longer and longer periods. Finally, in the spring of 1978, he just stopped coming back. Penny had to post notices in the newspaper saying she was divorcing him because she couldn't find him. If she'd looked, she would have found him in the Harris County Jail in Houston. He'd been charged with passing bad checks, including one he'd used to buy Penny a $649 microwave for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And back then, that was um, a lot of money for a microwave. He'd used Penny's credit to finance the vehicles, opening credit cards in her name, Mm. and draining her checking account. Quote, he wrecked my mom's credit and he wrecked her life, Lisa told the New York Times. The arrest on all that violated the terms of his probation from the Florida fraud a few years earlier. And so, facing extradition to Florida to serve a prison term, Skalnik's career as an informant began. A nearby cellmate, Thomas Hershey, was one of the Moody Park Three, anti-police brutality activists who led a rally in Houston's Moody Park in 1978 to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the death of Jose Campos Toros, who'd been beaten by police and thrown into a bayou. One of the police had said, let's see if the wetback can swim as they pushed him in. Turns out, he couldn't. The police, wait for it, just got a slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. Hence the rally. Unfortunately, the rally erupted into a riot that left 15 people hospitalized. Gee, I wonder if the police had any part in that. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And Hershey was in jail on charges that he incited a riot with a couple co-defendants. Skelnick called the DA and said he had information on the case. He ended up testifying in the 1979 trial that he just happened to be standing outside Hershey's cell and Hershey began to talk to him, telling him that his co-defendant, Travis Morales' plan had been to, quote, incite the Mexican-American youngsters. (laughs) Years later, Hershey told Koloff, the New York Times reporter, that when he heard that at his trial, where he was facing 20 years, he was dumbfounded. Quote, I'd never seen the guy before, never seen his face, didn't know his name. We weren't naive, but to actually see this unfold in front of us, to watch him lie when our lives were on the line, was pretty shocking, unquote. Hershey and his two co-defendants were found guilty, though they didn't get any prison time. Skalnik spent two months in jail in Houston, then was sentenced that November to a year in the Orange County Jail in Florida for violating his probation. But four days before Christmas... A Florida Circuit Court judge ruled Skelnick would be moved to a work release program instead mm. of being incarcerated, something very rare for repeat offenders. Yeah. The judge had, quote, received a recommendation, though, that Skelnick get the work release. Koloff of the New York Times wrote, The judge did not specify whether Texas prosecutors were behind that recommendation, but the lesson was unmistakable. The best way for a man behind bars to help himself was to help prosecutors. In February 1980, now 31, Skalnik married for a fourth time in Pinellas County, Florida. He told his new wife he was a law student. At the same time, he became engaged to a woman in Largo, Florida. He told her he was Dallas attorney. He got her to take out $3,500 in loans to help him set up the new law office as he wanted to relocate from Texas to Florida. He was arrested for grand theft, facing up to five years in prison, and was housed in Pinellas County Jail to await his trial. But by now, Skelnick knew he had a get-out-of-jail-free card. He called the DA. Ten days before his grand theft case went to trial in August 1981, 
Skelnick had information for the state attorney on three different defendants who were charged with murder. In exchange, prosecutors recommended that, if Skelnick pleaded guilty, he would spend no more than three years in prison on the five-year sentence. And if he could help them out some more, he might even get probation. Though, of course, they couldn't promise anything, because that would be illegal. Skelnick took the plea deal. His sentencing was postponed while he got to work. He ended up testifying in two drug trafficking trials and providing a deposition in a high-profile murder case. Every time, he said under oath that he hadn't been promised anything in return for his testimony. It was the truth, the New York Times points out, because no specific agreements had yet been struck. But yet, somehow, after he testified, he'd get a break on his sentence. In all his testimony, inmates freely and spontaneously admitted their guilt in what the New York Times calls the same oddly stilted language. And it also, it's like the same story every time. Oh, I was outside his cell and he just yep. happened to tell he me. He just happened to tell like, me. Re- yeah. Well, wait, okay. there's more. On June 30th, 1982, after testifying in a bunch of cases, Skelnick was sentenced to probation. Kaloff of the New York Times wrote, For someone who had racked up five criminal charges in nearly as many years and left the state the last time he was on probation, it was an astonishing feat. Weeks after he was freed, Skalnick would wreck Karen Parker's life. Karen Parker, in 1982, had just turned 12 and was living in Seminole, Florida, when she met Skalnick, who was 32. Mm. He'd been out of jail for less than a month. Karen Parker told Koloff, the New York Times reporter, he appeared out of nowhere. He befriended my mom and dad, mm. and suddenly he was in our life. He had a magnetic personality, and he loved to regale people with his tales mm. of being a police officer. Everyone was charmed by him. Skelnick was hired by the Parker's next-door neighbor's brother, a private investigator, so he was around a lot. One day, he was invited along on a fishing trip and picnic with a big group of family and neighbors. When they got home, Skelnick lured Parker, again, who had just turned 12, into his Cadillac, where he sexually assaulted her. Quote, I couldn't believe it was happening, she said. I felt like, where are all the adults? She said she didn't feel like she had a choice but to go along with what he wanted. Afterwards, he warned her to keep quiet that she could end up in juvenile detention. One of these days, you're going to open your mouth too many times. The only one who is going to be in trouble is you, he told her. A 16-year-old neighbor and her boyfriend saw little of what was going on. The girl saw Skelnick kissing Karen in the car, and when the boy got near, he saw what was obvious to him that Karen jerking Skelnick off. He could tell just by the motion. Um, I guess he got close enough to see that. Something Karen said that Skelnick had made her do when the assault began. That neighbor, the girl, is the only one Karen told about what had happened. She didn't think anyone would believe her if she spoke up. But later that year, after Skelnick was arrested, once again, for grand theft, the teenage neighbor spoke up. I think she was probably afraid before that to speak up because he was so well-liked. And in fact, Karen Parker's father kind of blamed her for it, and she was out of the house by the time she was 13 or 14. In December 1982, Skelnick was charged with lewd and lascivious conduct on a child under 14, which carried a 15-year sentence. Well, this was later described as a he-said-she-said case by the state. The prosecutors actually had the two eyewitnesses and Karen was given a polygraph, which she passed. Quote, Have you ever heard of a 12-year-old being given a polygraph? She said a little incredulously later. In other words, she had just turned 12. She was obviously, I think there was physical evidence too, even though it was a month or two later. So obviously something happened and she was a child. And yet, the evidence 
Karen, again, 12, had been sexually assaulted was, quote, pretty graphic, according to one cop. Skalnik, in one of the bigger ironies in this whole saga, actually told another inmate he'd done it. Despite the fact that a case against him was definitely more than he said she said, the charge was dismissed in 1983 after he copped a plea to the grand theft charge. He was sentenced to Pinellas County Jail instead of prison, where, as Carl Hyacin, one of my favorite mystery writers, oh, yeah. and also a Miami Herald columnist, yeah. wrote in his column, he was always conveniently in the right spot to hear an unsolicited confession from someone who barely knew him. Exactly. By this time, Skelnick had the snitch routine down pretty good. And again, this is 1983, a few years before the James Daly thing. Maybe he had it down too good. When he went back to jail, he had to be in protective custody because his reputation for being a snitch had spread. Good. A note in his official file in January 1983 says, beginning to encounter more and more inmates who recognize him. <laughs> Still, the Pinellas County prosecution and killing machine of the 1980s, of which Skelnick was now a major player, was not to be thwarted. His handlers, the police and jailers, got creative, moving inmates they needed evidence against into proximity with him. In fact, that year he testified in four high-profile cases, all ended in convictions, three of them death sentences. In the three death sentence cases, there was evidence the three men were on the scenes of the murders. It was three guys, but it was two separate cases. Mm -hmm. But police had no evidence that they took part in the murders they were being tried for. Koloff wrote, The confessions he recounted were lurid and dramatic, strewn with provocative details that prosecutors used, not just to show the guilt of the defendants, but also to establish that they were diabolically evil. Skelnick told of victims begging for their lives and of remorseless killers who laughed after their slaughters, boasting that they had outsmarted prosecutors hmm. and the police. Unquote. Kenneth Gardner was one of these hapless victims of Skelnick. His trial was about to start, and he was moved to a cell next to Skalnik. Accused huh. in the stabbing death of a hardware store owner, he supposedly told the snitch, I killed him, but no one will ever be able to prove it. <laughs> Richard Cooper, a teenager at the time, was put in a two-man cell with Skalnik. He supposedly introduced himself to the snitch by saying, I'm one of the men involved in the triple murder slayings they thought was a mafia gangland killing. Because that's the way a 19-year-old would exactly. say that. Cooper had a chance at some lenience since he was just a teenager, but Skalnik put the kibosh on that, telling the jury that Cooper said no jury would ever sentence him to the death chair because he was 19 and had a little baby face that would get their sympathy. Mm. J.D. Walton, a co-defendant of Cooper's, supposedly told Skalnik that the triple murder was, quote, a funny joke, unquote. All three, Cooper, Gardner, and Walton, were sentenced to death though Cooper and Gardner's sentences were later commuted to life in prison. Terry Van Royal, another co-defendant of Cooper and Walton's, was luckier. When Skelnick was moved into his cell, Van Royal told the guard he would not share a cell with Skelnick. He told the guard he knew who Skelnick was and what he did, that he snitched but made up stuff that wasn't the truth. They put Skelnick elsewhere. I'm surprised Skelnick didn't get shivved or something yeah. well they were always had him in protective custody know, they were looking out for him freddie gaines 24 wasn't as savvy as van royal gaines was charged with stabbing his girlfriend's ex to death in a bar brawl gaines who testified in his own defense told the mm. jury the fight was a chance encounter that got ugly and he admitted to the stabbing but said it, it was part of the fight unfortunately for freddie gaines Skelnick testified Gaines told him that he brought the knife to the bar looking for the guy and oh, that, quote, geez. he should have been charged with open heart surgery. 
Kaliff of the New York Times wrote that Skelnick's voice swelled with emotion as he testified against Gaines, so much that he once appeared to be on the brink of tears. While Gaines could have been sentenced to manslaughter or a lesser charge, Skelnick's testimony got him first-degree murder. 38 years later, Freddie Gaines is still in prison in Florida as we do this podcast. Wow. In 1984, Skelnick's buddy, Detective John Halliday, who was later to be the detective on the Daly case, wrote to the parole board that Skelnick was such a benefit to the state, helping to put so many murderers behind bars that he should get parole. The parole board let Skelnick out of jail in March 1985. Skelnick had served less than half of his five-year grand theft sentence. This was despite another letter to the parole board that said, quote, Mr. Skelnick's deceitful nature knows no bounds. How many chances will this man be given? How many more people will be hurt and victimized? Unquote. And also, despite a Department of Corrections assessment that Skelnick was a, quote, con artist of the highest degree who was at high risk for further unlawful behavior. Shortly after he got out, Skelnick married and divorced his fifth wife. He also sold two Lincoln Town cars to a woman for tens of thousands of dollars. It won't surprise you that she never got the cars. He conned another woman out of thousands of dollars in a phony real estate deal. He wrote a bad check at a jewelry store for $6,100 for a gold Rolex watch. As a reporter on the 2020 show says... Skelnick can't stay out of jail, and he also can't stop getting murderers to confess to him. Hmm. By 1986, he was back in the Pinellas County Jail, ready to help Pinellas County put some more bad guys behind bars. In May 1987, 18 days before James Daly's trial was ready to start, Daly was moved from the lower G-wing of the jail to the upper G-wing, the same wing where Skelnick was being held. Daly told the guard, get me out of here, this is a damn setup. The guard did not move Daly. As a reminder, Skelnick later testified that he was passing by Daly's cell when Daly called him over for advice, <laughs> thinking he was a private investigator, and then Daly confessed to Skelnick as he stood outside the bars of Daly's cell. This supposedly happened two days after Daly was moved to the wing. In reality, that would have been hard for Daly to do. Skelnick was being held alone in a cell away from the general population since everyone knew he was a snitch. <laughs> The way the jail was set up, there was no way for the men to get closer than several yards at the very best, and no way for Skelnick to ever be able to mosey up to Daly's cell, as he claimed he had. He would have had to holler at me, Daly said later, and I would have had to speak loudly to confess to him. Daly told Koloff of the New York Times, I never talked to Paul Skelnick in my life. We all knew he was an infamous snitch and an ex-police officer. We knew everything about him. We knew how many guys he had snitched on. There wasn't any hiding the fact. The officers would tell us. The officers that worked in the dang jail, they'd say, (laughs) don't talk to him. Skelnick told the jury in Daly's June 1987 trial that he wasn't promised anything for his testimony. Mm -hmm. And this may be one of the only non-lies he told in that trial, but it always worked that way. The fact he'd get a deal was implicit, but not discussed beforehand between Skelnick and the cops. Five days... After Daly was sentenced to the chair, Skelnick was released from jail on his own recognizance as he awaited his grand theft trial. Again, a charge that could get him 20 years, particularly with his long string of grand theft felonies under his belt. A Florida Parole and Probation Commission memo stated that his release was, quote, due to his cooperation with the state attorney's office in the first-degree murder trial, unquote. The parole board had earlier been warned that Skelnick was a flight risk, Turns out that warning was right. Skelnick was due back in court in October, but by then he was long gone. 
He'd gone back to Texas in a stolen, and this is, again, five days after Daly was sentenced to death. Okay. He was released on his own recognizance and immediately took off for Texas. Of course he did. In a stolen Lincoln town car and was living under the name Jason Paul Bourne. Sound familiar? (laughs) Well, it should. It's the name of the character Matt Damon played in the Bourne movies. (laughs) He wasn't only escaping his own Florida criminal charges, but he was also due to testify as a star witness in three other murder cases in which inmates had supposedly confessed to him. And he was also running away from a potential wife number, I think, six, who he had a date at the altar with he apparently didn't want to keep. By the way, he told her he worked undercover for the FBI. Oh, jeez. He landed in Austin, where he started running a scam that involved opening bank accounts with fake documents that showed wired money was coming in. He also bought $27,000 worth of jewelry with forged checks for new wife number six, not the one who was going to be wife number six in Florida, who he quickly divorced. He got arrested in February. He tried the snitch offer, but this time the prosecutor was a woman, and she wasn't standing for any of his shit or, or doing any deals. He's a big conner, as she wrote in a memo, with big in all caps. They also found he was wanted in Florida, so he was extradited back there to his old stomping grounds, the Pinellas County Jail. He thought he could slip back into his old deals, but they were pissed about him taking off the year before. And who can blame him? So they refused to play, at first. Mm. In a move of stunning chutzpah, Skelnick filed a motion claiming a history of extensive prosecutorial misconduct saying prosecutors coached him on how to testify in numerous cases. He said the coaching was to give juror the impression that he had actually heard all these confessions and had no agreement with the state for reward for the testimony. But, in fact, prosecutors knew of the potential questionability of the confessions and did make deals. He accused 11 prosecutors of misconduct and claimed to have given information or testimony in more than 50 cases and suggested that much of that evidence was tainted. The state argued that his suit was full of lies and gross exaggerations, but also said that testimony he'd given as a state witness was credible and often independently substantiated and withstood extensive cross-examination, which isn't true. An internal investigation found that very little of what he'd offered as new information gleaned from the confessions was substantiated. Detective John Halliday could only come up with two, one of them, a gun Skelnick's information led them to that was supposedly used in a murder. But the investigation found that the information was incorrect. It said the information from Skelnick was accurate. However, it came months after the gun was retrieved. So therefore, Skelnick did not help them find the gun. But as we all know, the state just hates to admit to anything that smacks of wrongful conviction, especially when they're going for the world's record of executing people. <laughs> So Skalnik dropped his motion when the state offered a five-year sentence if he pled to four counts of grand theft and two of failure to appear. He agreed as long as he could serve the time in Texas, where there were also some charges pending against him. And that all worked out for him, too. He served seven months in Huntsville, Texas on a Texas bail jumping charge, and in November 1989 was free again. Texas, it turns out, had never agreed to let him serve his Florida time there, and Florida didn't want to make the effort to extradite him. Skelnick celebrated by marrying and divorcing wife number seven. (laughs) By 1991, he was 42 and back in Friendswood, Texas, the town where he'd been married to Penny Rogers 15 years before. Looking for wife number eight, he set his sights on Misty Anderson's mother. According to 2020, they knew each other in high school and he was still going by Jason Bourne, 
Which doesn't make sense because she'd wonder why he had a fake name. Oh, well, he could have, I'm sure. My he guess is he had dropped the Jason Bourne thing since or all his. He had some story. Yeah, but, but because he wasn't wanted at yeah, this time, true. he didn't need a fake name. Quote, he came in like a knight in shining armor oh, and swept her off her feet, Misty said. Misty said Skelnick paid her mother a lot of attention and made her feel beautiful, and as a recently divorced woman, that had an effect. He told her he was a wealthy real estate developer and also a former CIA agent. <laughs> and girls, do I have to remind you, <laughs> if he says he was a CIA agent, then he probably wasn't. More like a see ya after I take all your money <laughs> agent. Ooh. Yeah. Skelnick gave Misty's mom a seven-carat pear-shaped ring when he proposed, which he did in pretty short order. Of course, it turned out to be cubic zirconia, not a diamond. Hey, still aren't cheap. Misty didn't like Skelnick from the start, and the feeling was mutual. He accused Misty of stealing the ring and determined she had to be punished. This Whoa. entailed grounding her, it was summer vacation, and having her dig holes in the yard in the Texas heat with no water. When she wasn't doing that, she had to stay in her room. She wasn't allowed to shower or brush her teeth, and she was only allowed one meal How a old day. Was she? Did- Fifteen okay, by 15. now. Okay. Apparently, her mother went along with all this. <sighs> After a month, Skelnick offered Misty a deal. Well, it wasn't really a deal. After telling her, I know how we can make this better for both of us, he started sexually assaulting Uh. her, repeatedly raping her over the course of a month. At first, she felt like she couldn't tell anyone because no one would believe her. But after a few weeks, she told a family friend who told her mother. Her mother called the police who arrested him. Misty said her mother became her hero at that moment. Her mother didn't think twice about it. She called the police. Misty, unlike Karen Parker, was lucky. Karen Parker was the girl in 1982, Mm -hmm. the 12-year-old. The prosecutor was a woman, Maggie Hindman. The bad thing was, his previous sexual assaults against children weren't on record. Mm -hmm. Hindman, who was district attorney in Galveston County, later said... If they'd known about the prior assaults, he would have gotten 25 years to life. In this case, he pled no contest to the sexual assault charge and was sentenced to 10 years. The maximum was 20, but he was sentenced to 10 because he pled no contest. By the way, I know I've said it before, but this plea bargaining on sexual assault charges, which still happens all the time, so it looks like the guy isn't as dangerous as he really is or isn't a sexual predator, has got to stop. Fortunately, in this 1991, he went to prison on a sex charge, and his others, they were plea bargained to, like, the grand theft and stuff, so he had no exactly. record. But I guess that's all another thing that's going to have to wait until we dismantle the patriarchy. I guess so. The Ugh. prosecutor, Maggie Hinman, said later, This guy clearly was grandiose, delusional, and had narcissistic personality disorder. He boasted that he was with the FBI, that he was with the CIA, and none of it checked out. She was flabbergasted when the New York Times writer told her about his Florida snitching record. <laughs> It's hard to believe prosecutors relied on him, Hindman said. My theory is because those prosecutors just wanted to stitch up cases and Scalnick could do it for him. They didn't exactly. care how much of a con man or liar he was. I have a question, too, and this might be for Matt. If you have a witness like that, and we, I know we've talked to him about jailhouse snitches, how much of their background are you... If you're cross-examining them, I would think that you're able to ask them about their background right to some extent you can ask them if they they were getting a deal for this and he was asked like in daly's case what the charges were but they didn't know all this other stuff but like i mean he's a con man right you know and that's what i mean it was theft but it was theft by by 
whatever deception deception but he also stole i mean there's a lot but anyway, anyway it's, uh, no, i'm just saying he's a con i mean how much can you believe someone that's a con man that's right. all i'm saying but go ahead Sorry. well people did apparently. i know they did after his conviction on the charges related to misty anderson karen parker the one whose rape was pled down to grand theft in 1982 so he could snitch on people like james daly said when she heard about misty it broke her heart i feel like it could have been avoided she mm-hmm. said Misty Anderson, the 1991 victim, said her heart breaks, too, for James Daly, that he's been on death row for nearly 40 years because of Skalnick. Skalnick served all 10 years of his sentence, for a change. When he got out, he was required to register as a sex offender. He didn't. Of course not. He next resurfaced, in of all places, Middlesex County, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. in the Boston area that includes the cities of Cambridge, Somerville, and other Boston suburbs. In 2003, he was charged in Middlesex County with larceny and forgery after claiming he was a lawyer and ripping people off who hired him for thousands of dollars. <laughs> According to Kaloff, he pled guilty and served time in state prison in Massachusetts, then fled the state around 2009 after repeatedly violating his probation. I checked newspapers.com and the Boston Globe archives and couldn't find anything about him, sadly. I'm not sure why. It seems like it's a story they would have covered. She based it on court records. I couldn't find any of them online. I, I went down a rabbit hole looking for the stuff. I'm And I don't doubt any of that. I just think it's odd. Nobody covered it. Anyway, Skelnick, after fleeing Massachusetts, landed back in Texas using the name E. Paul Smith. Hmm. He went with his old standby, fake attorney, as well as adding undercover Homeland Security agent... <laughs> ex-fighter pilot who had been shot down over Vietnam and terminally ill cancer patient to his repertoire to work scams, things like writing fake wills, taking people's money for fake investments and doing fake legal work and other things. He even had a fake marriage. A woman named Judy signed a fake marriage license for what would have been marriage number nine. Shirley Sadoff, a U.S. Marshal, began investigating Skalnik in 2015 after the daughter of one of his girlfriends looked him up on the internet and found his criminal record. Mm. And see, now the internet's catching up with him a little. Yep. He hurt and used a lot of women, Sadoff said. And I think one thing you'll see in this story is it tends to be women who actually do something about this guy. First of all, women are able to... I I hate to say women's situation. It's not women's situation. They pay more attention. Right. They pay more attention and they're... Well, he conned many women. These women in law enforcement aren't going to sit down and make a chummy deal with a guy. It's a certain type of woman, too, that... Right. That they're able to con. He was arrested in October 2015 for failing to register as a sex offender. When he was arrested, they found more than 30 fake IDs, as well as a framed law school diploma... (laughs) A legal dictionary embossed with the words <laughs> E. Paul Smith Esquire, attorney at law, and a handgun. It may come as no surprise that Skalnick wanted to cut a deal. James Ferris, an investigator with the Panola County Sheriff's Department in Texas, told Kaloff of the New York Times, He started telling me he could be useful inside the jail, and I told him I was not interested in speaking with him further. I would never be able to say on the stand that I believed the information he gave me was true and credible. Yeah. While Skelnick was defrauding his way across the country over the 30 years, 30 plus years since James Daly's trial, Daly was fighting to get his wrongful conviction overturned with little to show for it. He didn't have any money, so he was represented by the Capital Collateral Legal Council, a Florida state-run agency that represents death row inmates who don't have the money for a lawyer. 
His early appeals argued that the state had used false testimony, Skalnik. As evidence, they used Skalnik's 1988 motion, where he said he made it all up and that prosecutors knew it. The appeals made it as far as the Florida Supreme Court in 2007, which ruled that Skelnick's claims of prosecutorial misconduct had never been substantiated and that Skelnick himself had recanted. Prosecutors said they believed Skelnick was telling the truth. So the Florida Supreme Court rejected the appeal. In 2015, the Florida Commission on Offender Review, which is supposed to look at wrongful convictions, rejected Daly's request for a clemency hearing. All seemed lost. But then Daly, after nearly 30 years in prison, got a shot of luck. Chelsea Shirley, three years out of law school, took over his case at the CCLC. She was struck by the fact that Jack Percy, the guy who drove Shelley Baggio home and said Daly was with him, seemed to have made statements over the years that indicated Daly wasn't there after all. Quote, through the years, Percy suggested, but never explicitly said, that he committed this crime by himself, Chelsea told Koloff of the New York Times. Hmm. This included an interesting 1993 account in which Percy said he had been alone with Baggio in the early morning hours of May 6, 1985. While he never says what he did to her or where she went, he says, quote, I went home alone, unquote. Hmm. He then tells a story very similar to Daly's, that he went in, got Daly up, they drove to a nearby causeway, drank, smoked pop, played frisbee, and Daly got his pants wet, chasing the frisbee into the water. You know, I almost wonder, Percy was actually at that point thinking, I need to make Jim look well, guilty. Well, that's what I thought. I thought and that's why threw he... the frisbee into the I water. I was thinking, yeah. no, I thought that from the beginning. Oh, yes. okay, yeah. yeah. And as Koloff of the New York Times points out, when Daly wanted to tell that story at his trial, his lawyer said it wasn't believable enough and told him not to take the stand. In 2017, Chelsea Shirley got Percy to sign an affidavit that admitted Daly wasn't involved in Shelley Baggio's murder. The last line of the affidavit says, James Daly was not present when Shelley Baggio was killed. I alone am responsible for Shelley Baggio's death. That spurred another hearing for James Daly. But something funny happened between when Percy signed the affidavit and the January 3, 2018 hearing. Percy said he'd talked to someone at the state who told him his testimony could affect his parole. So instead of asserting that what was in the affidavit was true, he took the fifth. Daly's request for a new trial was denied. By now, Chelsea Shirley had some help. Attorneys from Yale Law School and the Innocence Project had signed on. They took the case again to the Florida Supreme Court, arguing there was evidence the two other jailhouse informants who testified against Daly, Pablo de Jesus and James Leitner, had bargained with prosecutors for reduced sentences in exchange uh-huh. for their snitching before the trial. The Supreme Court again said no, that the information was brought up too late. Not that it wasn't exculpatory, exactly. but it was brought up too late. Quote, Daly neglects to explain why this information could not have been discovered earlier, the court said. Mm. Califf wrote in the New York Times, in essence, the court was blaming Daly's lawyers for not uncovering facts that prosecutors had spent years obfuscating. And I also think that there shouldn't be a deadline on information if it's if it's credible information. Right. Well, you can see a lot of appeals. A lot of, a lot of appeals. appeals has nothing to do with guilt or innocence, but just these technical things. A week after that, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis mm. signed Daly's death warrant with his execution slated for 6 p.m. November 7, 2019. By now, they weren't using old Sparky, the electric chair, anymore. It was by lethal injection. DeSantis, who was from the county where the murder took place, said, This is one of the most gruesome crimes in the history of Pinellas County. 
This has been litigated over and over and over, and so at some point you need to do justice. But Daly got another break. He was appointed new federal attorneys, and I'm not sure, it's not clear how that happened or why, but on October 23rd, 2019, a federal district court, it was like two weeks before he was to be executed, a federal district court judge granted him a limited stay of execution so the lawyers could have time to get their appeals together. That stay ran out on December 30th, 2019, but the governor's office said it would wait for the federal appeal process before signing a new one. Two weeks before that, Innocence Project lawyer Josh Dubin, who is part of Daly's team, got Percy to sign a new declaration saying that Percy alone killed Baggio and that, quote, James Daly was not involved in any way, unquote. But in a deposition in February 2020, Percy said, no, Daly killed Baggio. He said he only signed the declaration to keep Daly's case going and to prevent him from being executed. At the hearing on that, he again took the fifth. By the way, according to the 2020 episode, Percy had said he'd never say in court he alone was responsible Mm. as long as his mother was alive. And guess who was sitting in the courthouse? His mother. Although he's also said his family has told him to do what he thinks is right. But the state of Florida apparently keeps advising him not to because of his parole that's hanging over his head. Meanwhile, Daly's lawyers continued to hammer at the Skelnick issue. Dubin pointed out at the hearing that since the prosecutor knew Skelnick had raped a child, he should have corrected Skelnick's testimony in Daly's trial when Skelnick said he had no rape in his history. But the mm-hmm. prosecutors say, hey, he wasn't convicted of rape or any sex assault, so we can't bring that up. And I think that they're splitting hairs. Mm-hmm. He was charged with it, but it was plea bargained. It wasn't dismissed or anything yeah. like that. So he basically wasn't convicted of rape because of their deal making. And of course, Beverly Andrews, the other prosecutor who was the prosecutor on Daly's case and is involved in the case now, said the charge of lewd and lascivious behavior are hard to prove since they're he said, she said. And as you remember, there was plenty of evidence against Skalnik in that case. But again, the prosecutors wanted him for snitching purposes, so they bargained away justice for his rape victim. At the hearing, Josh Dubin of the Innocence Project said, there was more evidence against Paul Skalnik in that assault case than there is against James Daly in the murder of Shelley Baggio. In a funny scene, in the, at least I think it is in the 2020 episode, the reporter tries to interview Skalnik, who's obese and bedridden yeah. after two strokes and a possible heart attack. And this was in the year 2020 as well. Two months after that interview, he'd be dead. Skalnik. Mm. The reporter says, I just finished interviewing James Daly, and he says you put him on death row. That's 100% correct, Skalnik <laughs> wheezes. The reporter, who looks bemused, says, He says he's on death row because you lied. Skelnick replies, There's a time and a place to talk. For the rest of it, Skelnick seems like he's not really interested in the conversation and makes a lot of non sequiturs, but he's obviously just doesn't want to deal with it. The New York Times reporter Pamela Koloff also interviewed Skelnick around the same time. She said he had two tattoos, one a United States Marines logo and another that says from Texas to Vietnam. He told her the scar on his right knee was a result of being shot down over Laos when he fought in the Vietnam War. For the record, he never served in the Marines Mm -hmm. or served in Vietnam. Prosecutor Robert Hyman on 2020, who's been one of the longtime James Daly prosecutors, said that Skelnick was vetted and checked out before they used him as a snitch. Mm -hmm. Right. He doesn't deny that they knew he was a professional con man. Heyman's notes at the time 
which Daly's recent lawyers uncovered, show the word sex assault in Heyman's handwriting, then crossed out very thickly. Mm, Jesus. Heyman is like, hey, that was 35 years ago. How the hell am I supposed to remember why I crossed that out? Heyman mm. said the fact a jury convicted Daly and the fact Daly's appeals hadn't been successful was good enough for him. Basically, he rationalizes and sees no issue with using 35-time snitch Paul Skelnick to put another guy to death in a case with no other evidence against the guy. Heyman said that Daly being put to death, quote, is an appropriate sentence under the law of the state of Florida, unquote. If the prosecutors won't see the obvious, maybe they should look at Florida's track record. In Florida, there have been 30 death row exonerations for false convictions, more than any other state. That's 30 people who are sentenced to death row who have since been exonerated because of a false conviction. Death row appeals do go on and on, and that's something victims' families complain about. But then consider that death row exonerees in Florida, the wrongly convicted men who would have been killed if things had been rushed. One example is Clement Javier Aguirre Jarquin, exonerated recently after a 2006 death sentence. It turns out there was faulty fingerprint evidence, and someone else confessed five times, but the yeah. prosecution chose to ignore it, and the defense and jury never heard about it. The Florida Supreme Court overturned Aguirre Jarquin's conviction, saying he was a scapegoat, not a criminal. So yeah, Heyman, juries can get it wrong. Michael Powell was foreman of the jury that sentenced Aguirre Jarquin to death. At the time, he was all for it. But after he found out what the jury hadn't heard about, he had some sleepless nights. He wrote in an Orlando Sentinel op-ed in 2019 urging the state to not kill James Daly, quote, Like the governor, I once held a man's life in my hands. I know how it feels to be sure someone did the crime. I know how it feels to hear about a terrible crime and believe whoever did it deserved a death sentence. And now, for the rest of my life, I will also know just how wrong a person, a group of people, and an entire criminal justice system can be. Mm. Governor DeSantis should walk humbly to avoid this burden. Powell used to be in favor of the death sentence. After his experience on the jury and what happened later, he's not. Quote, I just don't believe that the state should be in the position to murder, he said. The Innocence Project points out what should be obvious to everyone, particularly people in law enforcement. Quote, the promise or expectation of possible benefits from prosecutors creates a strong incentive to lie, Mm -hmm. and the secretive nature of the jailhouse informant system makes cross-examination and other legal safeguards against unreliable testimony ineffective. In many wrongful convictions, defendants were not given key information related to the credibility of the jailhouse informants who testified against them, including the benefits they received, previous cases in which they acted as jailhouse informants, and their criminal history. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, 21% of 123 death row exonerations are cases that involve jailhouse snitches. So that's one in five. Of nearly 400 exonerations by DNA evidence, about a fifth involve convictions because of jailhouse snitches. The Death Penalty Information Center lists 20 executions of people later found to be innocent Mm -hmm. of the 1,536 people executed since the death penalty was reestablished in 1976. The first one was in 1989. Obviously, there's no way to know how many people there have really been. And if you think, well, 20 out of 1,536, that's not bad. I'd say one out of that is bad. And God knows how many. Look at James Daly's fight. 
God knows how many of those people were also wrongly convicted. I know, and like, oh, you, yeah, it's easy for someone whose life hasn't been taken to right. say it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Obviously, there's no way to know how many more there have really been, and it's only been the recent decade or so that real attention has been given to false convictions, particularly jailhouse snitch evidence. But you can see by James Daly's case how hard it is, even in 2021, to turn around a case that has obvious flaws or little evidence. The National Academy of Sciences did a study that estimates at least 4% of the people on death row in the United States are innocent. Shelley Baggio's family says that they won't rest until Daly is put to death, and as I said at the beginning, they're tired of it being the James Daly show. One of Shelley's nephews last year found a 1998 letter to his mother, Shelley's twin sister from Jack Percy, in which he says he was drunk and high on drugs, but he knows Daly is the one who committed the murder, mm. even though he doesn't really remember what happened. Interestingly, the TV station that interviewed the nephew only gives his first name, Lance, and doesn't say why they're not giving his last name, which is bad journalism. Anyway, he found the letter after his mother died in 2006 and gave it to the state's attorney in 2019 when the case started making headlines again. Quote, Reading it and then seeing the contradiction in what I see in the news of him being innocent or portrayed as this innocent person, it was kind of very, it made me feel very uncomfortable, and it made me feel like I had to at least present the letter. He told TV station Bay News 9. He said his mother never got over her sister's murder. She kind of blamed herself for what happened, Lance said. And that's how she got the letter. She wrote to Percy asking what happened and if she could have stopped it. Because remember, she was with her sister earlier mm -hmm. that night. Lance says that Percy's response, quote, seems as if he feels very guilty about the whole situation and about not stopping James from doing it. Lance said based on everything his mother told him, the right people are behind bars. Mm. From what she told me, it was both of the men, James Daly and Jack Percy. Those were the two people she said and was adamant that they both were involved in this. And while I sympathize with the family, we've talked before about how much police and prosecutors exactly. manipulate the families of victims, particularly in wrongful conviction yeah. cases. Percy, I'm sure in that letter, wanted to make the sister feel better, but he's not so stupid he's going to put his parole in jeopardy mm -hmm. by confessing or deviating from his story in a letter to the victim's family. And yes, it's about Shelley, but it's also about Daly, because until this country stops executing innocent people, the kind of fight Daly is putting up needs to happen, and it only happens when you talk about it. When people get all disgusted about someone convicted of committing a crime getting any attention, I think it's missing the point. There's the victim story, yes, but there's also the justice system story and how the system works and how it doesn't. And while we could end this issue by getting rid of the death penalty, which is what I'd prefer, we'd still have the system about wrongly convicted people going to jail. Mm -hmm. Daly, for his part, sympathized with Baggio's family. Similar to what we've discussed about how law enforcement and prosecutors get the family on their side, Daly exactly. says, what can I say to them? I mean, how many times has the state lied to them? How many times has the state told them that for sure I was the one? I mean, there would be nothing I could say. Daly says he also has nothing to say to Skalnik, who, he points out, is a repeat child rapist. Unlike mm -hmm. Daly, who had no history of violence against women, or actually no criminal history except for a one barroom brawl, and no violence against children or anyone else, you know, aside from the three tours in Vietnam, which destroyed him emotionally mm -hmm. and made him the alcoholic drifter. and drifter he was. At Daly's sentencing hearing in 1987, his mother said, I sent two lovely young men to the Air Force and Marines, and they came back. They were different boys. Aww. 
On September 23rd of this year, Daly's seventh appeal to the Florida Supreme Court was denied. Daly's attorneys say that ultimately they may have to seek clemency from the Florida governor. I say good luck to that. Florida has executed 103 people since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. Quote, I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid of spending the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Not being able to clear my name for my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids, Daly says. Mm. And I'll remind you, there's no DNA evidence in Daly's case, no forensic evidence at all that links him to it. Two people at the time said he was definitely at home asleep when it happened. Mm. The only thing pointing to him is the word of Jack Percy, who had a history of violent assault, unlike Daly, who'd expressed an interest in underage Shelley. Her father had even told her to stay away from him, unlike Daly, had a knife similar to that used to kill Shelley, unlike Daly, who didn't pass a polygraph, unlike Daly. So it's the word of Percy, who has several times said he's the only one who did it and then recanted. And also the word of Paul Skalnick, who, if you didn't know at the beginning of this episode, you now know is one of the world's biggest liars and con men. And a child child rapist. Those two men are the only reason James Daly is on death row. Daly is still visited every week by his ex-wife, Mary Kay, who he married in 1966, before he went to Vietnam. He'd be the oldest man ever executed in Florida. He's waiting to find out now what his new execution date will be. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, and I just want to say, I know there are so many things to say, but this shows how cynical the justice system is. Aside from the whole death penalty thing, the fact that they will bargain away, you know, they say we're doing it for Shelley's family, yet they bargained away rapes of children. I know, I know. So he could go in and snitch. And don't tell me they don't know he was lying. There are 35 documented cases where he was a snitch. Oh, and um, before I forget, before I forget, let me just, I forgot to put this part in. This is very quick. Only seven out of 50 states have reforms on jailhouse snitching or are discussing reforms. The Innocence Project suggests Prompt and complete disclosure of jailhouse witness evidence, Mm -hmm. tracking the use of jailhouse witness testimony, requiring judges to hold pretrial reliability hearings to assess whether a jailhouse witness's testimony is admissible, providing instructions that jurors should consider benefits offered to jailhouse witnesses and other reliability factors when assessing their statements. None of those things obviously were done in James Daly's case with Skalnick, and I believe that the jury had known what a sleazebag. By then, he had been involved in dozens, a couple dozen cases. I know. Come on. No one's that No one's that lucky or that good at getting people to talk. And he's... Uh, <laughs> right. Like I said, what he's in prison for, he's not in prison for, like, armed robbery or something. He's in prison for being a con man. Right. So he's obviously at doing best, a con. At best, being yeah, a con man. Well, I and, mean, that's one of the reasons he's in and prison. And God knows what we don't know about it. We, In fact, we know about most of this from Pamela Koloff's work for ProPublica Thank in the New York Times and her record search. We're not getting any of this, of course, from Pro the people he used. Pro I know, it really is. You know, and also, I like the idea of the judge assessing someone before they can be a witness because presumably the judge is going to be objective. Because I'm sure there are cases where somebody who's committed a crime does say to somebody else in prison, yeah, I did it, blah, blah, blah. And you don't want to necessarily not be able to use that evidence. But as we've said so many times on this show and so many wrongful conviction things, 
if you have to try that hard to make a guy look guilty, maybe you need to take another look at the case and see that the real guilty guy is already in prison. Jack Percy. Well, that's the thing that kills me. And it was similar to that case I did the kid that killed the doctor and his well, he didn't kill him. The one that drove around with him. It was in the night. The car, yeah. Two of them were in prison for the same crime. I know. I just don't understand. That if and appeals... why are they so focused on this one guy? Right. Because cause they didn't get a death penalty with yeah. the other guy? I mean... Right. I, th- I really think they do. You see it all the time. They double down. Well, they so will not weird. say this guy didn't do I it. I know. And it's not about justice. At well, that part point. of it's it winning. Part of it, and I didn't go into a lot of it because this was already long and stuff, but if you read the New York Times December 2019 article by Pamela Koloff, she does go into the politics of it and how in the 1980s, certain politicians in Florida were trying to prove they were tough yeah. on the death penalty and blah, blah, blah and you do that by putting people to death. Exactly. They you still know. do it. And it's, it's ridiculous that in this country we still have of it it's not a deterrent no, not because because the states that have the highest that have the death penalty and have the highest level of executions also have the biggest murder rates i know and if you want to see more on that go on to the innocent projects website or the national death penalty registry website and they have more of the stats and stuff and when you hear people talk about it people say it's a deterrent but it gets right down to people it's the old i do and i Two for tooth vengeance, it's which makes which makes us no better than what it's we're accusing. It's just more killing, right? It's, it's just, just more just killing. It's more killing. It's killing people like it's a fucking just, dog. It really doesn't do anything to help the the issue. No, why someone's killing someone? If you look on the death penalty registry's website, you'll see the huge amount. And James Daly is white, and Shelley Baggio is white, but the huge disparity in racial executions and the huge disparity in what color the victims were and what color the perpetrators were and who's getting put to death i can't remember the exact stats but like 70 something percent of the people put to death are black men yeah that doesn't but anyway i thought you would find that an interesting interesting. and i'll update on whether james daly actually gets um there's a lot of attention now to his case but that doesn't mean florida i don't see ron desantis you know, he's in favor of death from COVID to the death penalty. <laughs> unless it's unless it's women having control over their own uteruses oh, as yeah, far as getting abortion. Right. He's he's in favor of death pretty much. Yeah. So anyway Oh, and another point I wanted to make before we go on to recommendation that our listener Julie wrote in too, talking about the Joyce McLean episode 108 and other episodes the dismissive attitude towards violence against girls and women and stuff and well the the prosecutors in pinellas county can say oh we want to get justice for shelly baggio the fact that they will will dismiss a rape of a young girl uh, of a 12 year old because because they want him in there snitching on people they may rationalize it, but it just shows they don't give a shit about violence against girls and women. They don't give a shit about Shelly Baggio. I'm sorry if that offends anyone, but they don't. They, they just, don't. It's they, just about another win. Right. It's about another about. win and another person put to death so that they can look tough. And even though politics have changed in the in the 40 years since, nearly 40 years since they were putting people to death almost daily or whatever there in, in Pinellas County, they uh, or sentence them. <laughs> Once somebody is convicted, 
prosecution will not they don't give a shit about justice they don't or or these or it would be a lot easier for people like james daly and even if you still think he's guilty he obviously didn't get a fair trial there's obviously not the evidence against him i know to convict so you him of can't death. just go by that right. he think he seems like he did it. There right. has to be evidence. There has to be clear And he's not even a violence guy. There weren't even... I know. Jack, Jack Piercy was practically wearing red flags. And you wonder, too, since it's 1985, we'll never really know how much he, he groomed her, how much he... You know, this whole thing about wow. him paying attention to her and her father being nervous about it. You wonder what's under the surface well, uh, of Yeah, all. I mean, I was... A, she's a bit younger than me, but... I remember those days in the eighties, and a fourteen-year-old girl. I used we used to hitchhike. We used to do stuff like that, right. and there were older guys hanging around, and you got creepy. It was we thought it was creepy, but at the same time, you. And twenty twenty doesn't do any favors by describing her as a fourteen-year-old going on thirty because she wasn't. She was fourteen, it and even if matter. she acted older and was out there partying, it it's it. She's not an adult, exactly. But anyway, you have a recommendation. Yes, I do. um so my negative nellies it's not a negative nellies watching it's reading oh listening i guess oh it was an audible i had an audible credit i like to have long books because i try to go for walks Every night and listen while I walk, which I know is bad because you're not supposed to have headphones on. But you know whatever. Yeah, you got to be careful that the Portland head yeah, striker that guy hasn't doesn't. Hit anybody lately? Well, I had an audible listen. So I figured I'd give Stephen King a try. I haven't listened to Stephen King for a while. I heard some good comments about this book. It's just came out called Billy Summers by Stephen King, and the overview of the book is it's about a. I want to say at the beginning. The subject matter is usually not one I seek out for books, so but he's a good writer, and I thought he would put maybe put an interesting spin on it. It's about a hired killer, mm. a, a hitman, who it's his last gig, and he does make a lot of references to how in movies it's always oh this is my last one and all this stuff goes wrong. Suffice it to say, stuff does go wrong. It's a long book because it's Stephen King. I'll talk more about it after. And I'm going to give some spoilers. I'll try not to be too spoilerish. I'm not not recommending it. It's a good book, but there are some issues with it. So bad reenactments, no. I mean, it's, there's no reenactments in it. Narrative cliches, negative one. Ooh. Um, and it's similar cliche to pretty much every male written book. I know I'm a uh, misanthropist. What is it if you hate men? Normal. <laughs> I know. Sorry, guys. Except for our listener, male listeners. We all we love the two all or three men. of them out there. Um, it's always with Stephen King. The guy's always like thirties, forty. You know, right? That the protagonist. Um, I'm not going to go into how he meets this young woman who's 21 or 22. Mm-hmm. So far, I'm almost to the end, and there hasn't been any sex, uh-huh. but there's been hints of oncoming. There, but love. do you know how? realize how rare it is in male written books that the guy meets a woman his age or older no shit and there's no reason why this person has to be 20 um there there are some plot points where her age matters but i will say that the same plot could have been written 
with either a male, it could have been a man that he came across that becomes his helper, or it could have been a woman of his own age, or a man of his own age, and he could have just adjusted the plot to go along with that. The specifics of the plot required it to be a young girl, but he could have done the same type of things could have happened without a young girl, a young, attractive girl. Or she could have been a young fat girl, or she could have been a young girl who wasn't as we know, youngness and attractiveness ramps up a man's interest in a woman, and like a fat middle-aged woman is not going to be interesting to a man. So So I give him a negative one for that. Racial gender obtuseness, also a negative one. Just because of that, again. And because there was uh, another character that the guy sleeps with who is a woman probably about his own age, which is fine. But the thing that bugged me is they go out for a drink and she gets drunk and they have sex, which she wants to have sex, but it also bothered me that he wasn't drinking at all and she was super drunk and had sex. Mm -hmm. That kind of bugs me. So... And also just because of the young girl again, I'm taking. Are, are there any? Of, are there any racial um, um, people of color? Oh in no! The book? Yes, there are people of color, and they're his neighbors. And it's a family, and so he is fine about that. There's other characters that could be any racial right. ethnicity. He doesn't really specify. He's a veteran of the Gulf War, and he talks about his past. He's a sniper in the army or or he was sorry he was in the Marines. sorry any armed forces people mm. so stuff like that lack of good visuals so i'll just talk about the audio the audio is fine the guy that reads it is an actor he's fine he does a good job with the character voices the only thing that bothers me as always does with men is when they do women's voices which he's okay with but sometimes they make the women sound too sweetie or oh yeah um it's not like he changes his voice to a high-pitched voice like monty python or something (laughs) but i don't know so but that's not his fault i'm not i'm not taking anything off missing pieces i'm not taking any points off stephen king has written hundreds i don't even know how many books he knows how to write a plot that's good, and he, he does not leave you with any questions, and it is a, a bit of a complicated plot. I'm almost to the end. I thought I was going to finish it on my way here today because I was listening to it, and I have about an hour left out of 16-something hours. So, so far, I don't have anything where I'm like, hey, whatever happened to blah, blah, blah. He does a good job, so I am not taking any points. Inaccuracy and anachronisms, no. It takes place mostly in 2018-19. I have no idea if his the memories of his combat were accurate or not because I wasn't there, but he doesn't really have any anything I'd take away for that. Storytelling, not taking anything away. He, in fact, the first part of the book is him getting ready to do this big job, his last job, and that I thought that was riveting and his way of writing suspense is good. The middle of the book is lulls a little bit. And I was had my slight annoyance with this this character of this young woman. So that kind of, but I'll still say he's not, I'm not taking any points off. He, he does a good job. Freshness, a half a point off. I'm not into the mob uh, hitmen type of Yeah, me books. neither. Yeah. I don't like books where, I, I don't want to say you're glorifying it, or more romanticizing yes. that kind of a, a job. And I know he'd say he wasn't, he was showing the guy in all his 
flaws and stuff, but just by writing a book about them, you're still when you're making the that person a protagonist of a book, you are automatically romanticizing. Exactly. You know. I mean, I know he supposedly only kills bad guys. He he does talk about the hypocrisy in his job and all that stuff, or he thinks about it because there's a lot of internal thing going on. But he does do one at least one thing in the book that I think is bad, is really bad and not necessary. So I don't know if that's in fresh, but I'm taking half a point off. Repetition. I took a half a point off. I think it's just the repetition of, no, I don't know if I'll take a half point off. I don't think he's repeating. And I'm not going to say beating the drum. I'm not taking any points off for that. So I took off two and a half. I was going to take off three, but take off two and a half. So it's seven and a half points. There's no supernatural stuff in it. So, or, or, or very Which gory. Which is a plus for me. Yes. Or, and there's not a lot of really gory stuff. Like the guy does do violent stuff, but there's not a lot. He doesn't, like a lot of times in some of his books, he goes into too much detail with the gore and it's not, that that isn't happening. He's a really good writer and I can't fault him for, I've never had an issue with his writing, his character development is usually good although I think that the girl is a little bit of a what does Hannah call him a Mary Sue is that what they're called the girl it's a woman that's like I'm not up on my cliche names it's like a perfect name for a literary device where there's this woman that's good she can do everything good and she's perfect and Mm. a young wow I'm the writer and I didn't and I think it's called Mary Sue writers will have to tell us and um or we can look it up on the internet Mary Sue is a term used to describe a fictional character usually female who is seen as too perfect and almost boring for lack of flaws originally written as an idealized version of an author in fan fiction that that's where it came from and um hannah told her teacher that Anne and Anne of green gables was a mary, mary sue, sue so she didn't like her so anyways the girl is a bit of that or young woman i should say but she's 22 but he so by the end of this book i might have a worse a bitchier reaction to it but right now i think it's pretty good i've enjoyed it and I want to see what happens because he's right. so good at writing that. The issues I have are the same issues that I always have with his books. That the women are, I don't think he writes them as well as the men. They're also objectified in his books a lot. He does bring in politics, the fact that Trump's president and stuff. Overall, I say it's good, but 7.5. Yeah. One thing I've always liked about his books is that he is empathetic to characters yes he is but yet i do feel women are objectified and i think a lot of men since they don't understand it in general yeah male writers have trouble writing female characters who aren't because i don't think most men in general realize well there's one thing that i one thing that i just thought of that i liked about it and the book's character has to wear a disguise and the one person that recognizes him right away is a woman and he the character says to himself he's like oh that doesn't surprise me because women seem to you know look past disguises a lot more easily than men yeah which is probably true. Yes. If you changed your skin color a little bit and right. put on a wig, I'd still know it was you. Right. I mean, come yes. on. How would you not? But right. men wouldn't a lot of well, times. Well, I think they would, but maybe not. If you had really big 
Get, like, well, it's because they don't pay attention push. to details no. and to other people because nobody's as interesting as they are yeah, to themselves. So, anyways, that was oh, my. Good. Well, maybe I'll voice. read it. I would actually read a print version, not listen to an audio book. But I, I think the print version you might enjoy even better because it's yeah. so, the audio book always kind of it's always going to have that element of and sometimes it's it. good, but right. sometimes it's not. Okay, well, thank you for that. You're and welcome. Next episode. I'm doing something. You are doing something. And I don't know what, so we'll find and out. And we'll update anything we need to update then and stuff. We were a little rushed because of my trip to Oregon. Yes. And hopefully, this, if this is late, it won't be that late. And so we should probably just sign off, right? Yes. Oh, although I do want to say that the person that said... Who was it that said they would have liked to see you try to do a main accent? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, one of our listeners mentioned on Facebook. And I um, I can't. I can't do accents. I can't do accents. But, but people may be curious. So maybe next episode I'll have an example of a main accent. You have, most people think it's that down east accent that you hear like the Pepperidge Farm. Band. Right. And right. there are people that do actually talk I'll like I'll find that. a real one. And, like and, and so people can. But it's different. Yeah. 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 Anyways. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. That's like, something for another day. Because the cops already probably hate us. Yeah, that's probably why we didn't get that tour of the crime thing that we were. I'm somebody mad at probably you. said. Why? Because I speak my mind about police. <laughs> no. Because I gotta tell you, today's story <laughs> isn't gonna do anything. Oh, is that where you were beaten by someone? Oh, no, I have a bug bite. To the, it's because I went outside. Going outside is bad. Brown tail moth. It's still in the air. No, it's... A- but today's story isn't going to... I'm telling you, it's Make not- the cops like us Going hiking, going... Anything like that is bad. Well, the... Br- I... That's one reason I'm not I talking want- about brown tail moth. I'm talking about everything. Right, I know. It's better to just anyway, stay all the time. So... I don't know why the fuck people with motorcycles have to sit there and rev their fucking because engines. Because they like to have them loud so everybody will notice. It's gotta, it's gotta be, have something to do with their penises. I, I think I prefer, I can't say, I was gonna say I prefer motorcycles to bicyclists, but I don't want to offend bicyclists. Yeah, who knows, we may have some who are listening. Like, I was thinking when I was flying and all the people I saw in airports well. and stuff who didn't have their masks above their oh. noses were men. And I'm like, that's gotta be some something to do with their penises. I know. You know, Are like they they're displaying, like since they can't penis. display their penis in public, this gives them a chance to display, uh, pr- uh, a you know, a protuberance.